This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Robert Canigal discusses his new book, Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot digs into Canadian publishing trends. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got a new number one and number two on the fiction list. Rock fiction, on. Hardcover fiction. And number one is Commonwealth by Anne Patchett. Uh, we gave this a starred review and said that it's a funny, sad, and ultimately heart-wrenching family portrait, a collage of parents, children, stepchildren, siblings, and step-siblings. And uh, it starts with a pair of divorces mm-hmm. in 1960s California. Bert divorces Teresa, Beverly divorces Fix, and Bert and Beverly marry and relocate to Virginia. And uh, the families blend in various ways, and uh, Patchett follows the children into adulthood, focusing on one of them, who confides stories of her childhood to a novelist, who then uh, writes a novel about their family that's turned into a movie. So there's a whole lot of meta <laughs> right, in here. Right, I was just going to say. And, uh, and uh, we say that um, some scenes show Patchett at her peak in humor, humanity, and understanding people in challenging situations. What's more challenging, after all, than a family like the Commonwealth of Virginia, made up of separate entities bound together by chance and history? So that's at number one. Um, sold a very nice 23,000 copies mm. out of the gate. Great. And at number two is Pirate by Clive Cussler with Robin Burcell. Um, this is a Sam and Remy Fargo adventure, the eighth one in the series. And, uh, you know, this is another Cussler sea adventure. And, uh, all that we say that all the familiar elements are in place. A king's treasure lost in the mists of time, an ancient book that hints at the location of the treasure and a wealthy evildoer who will stop at nothing to find it. So, you know, they're good guys. They're bad guys. They all end up in a, cavern underneath a castle for a grand shootout. And our review says that along with the protagonists, readers will heave a sigh of relief that the end has finally arrived. Mm-hmm. So strictly for the fans, but cussler has got plenty of those. And down at number nine is Nutshell by Ian McEwan. Uh, we uh, also gave this a star. Uh, said that this novel is short. It's only about 200 pages. It's smart, and it's narrated by an unborn baby. Mm. Uh, and the narrator describes himself upside down in his mother's womb, arms crossed, doing slow-motion somersaults, almost full term, and wondering about the future. This very wow. aware, self-aware fetus uh, has been listening to uh, the radio and podcasts and audiobooks that it can hear in the womb. So um, there's a, there's a lot going on in here. And uh, separate from that, there's a, a sort of suspense plot involving overhearing his mother and her lover planning to kill his father. 
So there's quite a lot going Goodness. on in this book. Uh, we say the, the murder yeah. plot structures the novel as a crime caper, but it's done McEwen style. So it's laced with linguistic legerdemain, uh, cultural references and insights into human ingenuity and pettiness. Uh, and it's brief, dense, bitter, and suggestive of unrequited and unmanageable longing and surprisingly affecting. Wow. So uh, that's, uh, they announced 150,000 copy first printing. And uh, you know, so far, it's uh, chugging along on the bestseller list at number nine. Great. Just below that at number 10, An Obvious Fact by Craig Johnson. This is the 12th Walt Longmire mystery. Um, he's a lawman in Wyoming. And uh, he and his longtime friend and sidekick, Henry Standing Bear, look into the circumstances that led a 22-year-old to run his motorcycle off the road during an enormous annual motorcycle rally in South Dakota. Mm. It's the 12th mystery in the series. Uh, series fans will be uh, very intrigued. And uh, we say that whether he's squaring off against biker gangs or teasing out long simmering feuds involving his closest friends, Walt Longmire is always the man for the job. So that's uh, sitting pretty at number 10. And at number 16, we have another mystery. Um, this is Robert B. Parker's Debt to Pay, uh, the late Parker uh, created several properties that are now being continued by other authors. This one is by Reed Farrell Coleman. And uh, this is the, the third of Coleman's uh, continuations of Parker's series featuring small town police chief Jesse Stone. Um, he's an alcoholic, lost his job with the LAPD, and has wound up in a small town in Massachusetts uh, where he's, you know, pretty much staying sober and uh, solving some crimes. And there's a complex cat and mouse game that will keep readers turning pages en route to an appropriate conclusion that offers numerous possibilities for the next book. And finally, down at number 23, uh, nice to see some science fiction on the list. This is Navigators of Dune by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. Mm -hmm. Frank Herbert created the original Dune series. Brian is his son, and uh, he and Anderson have been putting together a whole bunch of these prequels, kind of looking at how things were set up for the events of the original Dune books. And uh, we say this is a pretty campy finale to the prequel trilogy set 10,000 years before the start of Dune, and the players clash in battle over control of the galaxy-wide Imperium. There's a pretty familiar power play scenario. There's the Empire, there are religious factions, there are people who just want to you know, make some money. Right. And uh, it all comes together uh, with uh, some deliciously evil bad guys, a dollop of an improbable but operatic love story, and destruction on an epic scale. And our review says readers shouldn't expect nuanced characters, dialogue, or prose, and the story is slow to get off the ground, but once it's going, it concludes with a bang that's likely to satisfy fans. And of course, they leave the door open for a sequel in those, oh, right. in those 10,000 years. Anything, Anything could happen. Could happen. <laughs> Any number of books could happen. So uh, that's on the list at number 23. And that's what's happening on Hardcover Fiction. So nonfiction, we've got a new number one, uh, and this is Bill O'Reilly, Killing the Rising Sun, How America Vanquished World War II Japan. Now, just to give an idea, this first week out, uh, it sold about 145,000 copies. <sighs> Compare that to uh, The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo, huge bestseller, has been on for five weeks now, and total number of copies, that's about 130,000 Wow! for the five weeks. So this is, uh, I mean, it's uh, Bill O'Reilly is, is, is kind of his own 
publishing powerhouse. Well, we should so. thank him for getting so many people to read books. Yes, exactly. So at number two, Scorched Earth, Restoring the Country After Obama by Michael Savage, who's got his own uh, radio station, the Savage Nation uh, radio talk show. And uh, this is uh, one of the many uh, right-wing books, conservative books that we, we see, especially during this election time. Number six, The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate by Peter Wolobin, uh translated from the German by Jane Billinghurst. This is a Greystone publishing book. We say the fascinating book will intrigue readers who love a walk through the woods. That's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Uh, at number eight, this was a big book, Elizabeth Vargas, the host of World News Tonight 2020, a memoir of panic and addiction. The title is Between Breaths. In her eye-opening memoir, Vargas chronicles a difficult and inspiring life hidden not only from the public, but from her family and friends. And here she talks about being an anxious child and a lot of things you, you wouldn't necessarily think of someone who is such a strong personality on TV. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is at number eight on the bestseller list. And then we have another well-known person, Carol Burnett, coming to us with In Such Good Company, um, a memoir. This is at number nine. Fans of Carol Burnett will know. I mean, she's from 67 to 78. The the Carol Burnett show was, was huge. It was uh, the biggest like, thing. It was the biggest thing. So, mm-hmm. And uh, now uh, Burnett presents a look at her beloved variety hours. So this is what she talks about in, in such good company. You can imagine is about the guest who she had on the, uh, on the show. Number 10, the subtle art of not giving a F asterisk CK, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. By Mark Manson. Uh, this is kind of a generation-defining, self-defining self-help guide from a blogger who cuts through the crap to show us how to stop trying to be positive all the time and how we can truly become better, happier people. This is from the uh, – we don't have a review. That's from the, uh, uh, the jacket copy. Next, we have Abby Wambach. Uh, this is kind of big coming off the uh, World Cup. Uh, Forward is the title, A Memoir by the uh, famous soccer athlete. Uh, and, and here in this book, we also don't have a review of this. This came to us too late. Uh, Wambach has always pushed the limits of what is possible. And here she talks about how to overcome problems to live a happier, braver life. So, and then finally, another memoir, Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy by Mike Love, written with James S. Hirsch. This is about the Beach Boys uh, singer, uh, Mike Love, songwriter. Love's sobering look at the ups and downs of a rock and roll band nevertheless ends on a note of hope that music can provide harmony in a word of, uh, in a world of spirit for a struggling world. And that's what we have. That's at number 16. And that's our nonfiction list. So lots and lots of celebrity memoirs. Lots of celebrity memoirs. Yes. Lots and lots. Yes. Yes. And there'll be even more. That's some, more some good fall reading. Yes. Yes. We got, we should look forward to in two weeks, Bruce Springsteen. Oh boy. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Robert Canigal tells us how Jane Jacobs changed the way we look at cities. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Robert Canigal on the line. His new book is Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. Robert, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here. So Jane Jacobs is an urban planning activist, I guess is the short version. Give us a little bit of a longer version, um, who she was and uh, how she became a household name. 
sure. Um, she's she was an author and an activist. And some people you mention the name, they immediately think of her as the activist. And some people you mention the name, you immediately think of her books. The first of her books, and the one that kind of made her name, was The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which had a, a really profound and continuing and long-lasting attitude, uh, alteration of attitudes about uh, cities, uh, both among uh, planners and architects and ordinary people. And um, she later went on to write uh, half a dozen other books, some of them on cities, some of them not. In the meantime, she, during the late 50s and the early 1960s, was an activist in uh, Greenwich Village, where she famously took on Robert Moses, who wanted to do terrible things to New York, like run an expressway through Lower Manhattan, in particular, the Lower Manhattan Expressway. So um, she was born in 1916 and died only six years ago. Um, that's a tremendously long life, and she kept it very full. Yeah, let's hear it for a long life. Uh, she died at age 89. I think it was a few weeks before her 90th birthday. And I think one of the interesting things is that she she was kind of a late bloomer, that up until the age of, I guess you'd say, 42 or so, she was had a perfectly familiar, ordinary, middle-class existence. She was an editor and a writer for Architectural Forum in New York City, making, you know, a decent income living in uh, the West Village of New York, uh, and completely unfamous. And uh, it was only the publication of Death and Life in, in Great American Cities in 1961, when she was already 45, that uh, basically altered her life and making her very well known. So can you tell us a little bit about her her upbringing and and what might have you know led to her uh path to urban planning? Well, I said before that she was a late bloomer in more ways in more ways than one. Uh she um never never graduated from college. Uh she had no academic position certainly. She even had trouble getting out, get, getting through high school. Uh, in 1933, when she finally did graduate uh, from Scranton Central High School, uh, her mother was asked, uh, Mrs. Butzner, which is her Jane's maiden name, of course, uh, what was the big highlight of the year? And to which she replied, getting Jane through high school. Jane didn't do well with authority figures, didn't like people telling her what to do, um, and was constantly uh, running into trouble with school authorities. Some of her courses in high school, she barely passed. And um, she didn't, she, when she got out of high school, she didn't go to college at all, even though her parents had set aside some money for her. She went to a business college, learned shorthand and uh, stenography, and uh, at the age of 18 went to New York. Um, first in Brooklyn, then Manhattan, where she got a whole series of what we would say today were kind of miserable jobs, um, doing ordinary routine um, office work with companies that were often going out of business on it. This was right in the middle of the Depression. Mm. So she'd, she'd have a job, and uh, uh, before she knew it, the business was was out of business. Uh, finally, in uh, World War II, she got her first 
real writing job. Uh, she had done some writing before for Vogue, a couple, a couple of uh, freelance articles on the various commercial districts of uh, New York City. But the first actual writing job she got with that paragon of literary achievement, uh, Iron, um, Iron Age, which was basically a trade magazine for the iron and steel industry. Mm-hmm. And then, then later she got her job at Architectural Forum and um, went on to um, uh, write about cities and architecture. And uh, ultimately that led to uh, death and life of great American cities. Well, I want to go back a little bit. You had mentioned her writing for Vogue, and, and here she was at age 19. Uh, uh, this is about 1935, and she's writing about the Manhattan's fur district. Uh, mm-hmm. What was going on in her life? I mean, this is, it's, you know, she's, she's young. She hasn't really graduated from, you know, as you said, college, but she was able to get a writing job. How, how did this work out for her? It wasn't, it wasn't a writing job. It was uh, a freelance assignment. Uh, she encountered some people in the, the fur district, started talking to them, interested in editor at Vogue, and mm. she always had wanted to be a writer. When she went, when she left for New York, her goal was to become a writer. Uh, she had written poetry in high school, and in one of these very earliest compilations of like student work, poetry, uh, one of her poems appeared, and they asked her, you know, what do you want to be? And she said she wanted to be a writer. And uh, that, was the, that was the intent from the beginning. So the freelance job, which is what it amounted to for Vogue, was pretty good for, a, I guess it was a 19, a 19-year-old. And she did, I think it was four of these articles about the various districts, the Diamond District, I guess it was, fur, leather. And uh, if you read these articles today, they're full of feeling, full of flavor, uh, and they're harbingers of uh, the Jane Jacobs we would come to know later. I don't think, however, that the fact that these happen to be about the city meant that she was somehow preordained to end up writing The Death and Life of Great American Cities. The fact is, in the, in the later years... She ended up writing about all sorts of things, exploring all sorts of subjects and approaching them with the this fierce intelligence that um, allowed her to learn all about something and then go about and write about it for ordinary readers. So um, you know, she, as you say, she sat down and wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities that came out in 1961, but it, it must have been a huge undertaking. What was it like for her? writing that? How long did it take her? It was a huge undertaking. It was much more than she bargained for, actually. Um, Her previous job before she left the job to write the book was with Architectural Forum, where she's writing, you know, 2,000 word articles on Cleveland or uh, 1,500 word articles about um, some architect or some... One of the first things she wrote was about a Peruvian hospital, you know, all sorts of arcane things. And uh, what happened, what what changed things for her was a fluke. Her boss, 1956, uh, was asked to show up at a conference at Harvard to discuss how cities are doing and architecture. And he said, sure, he'll come. And then he realized that 
no, he couldn't come because he was going, I think, to Europe at the time. Hmm. So he asked Jane to do it for him. And at first she refused. I don't believe, I don't get up in front of public. I'm going to be falling all over myself. I'm nervous. I don't like doing it. But finally he uh, prevailed on her if, uh, if she said she could talk about whatever she wanted. Huh. And she went, she went before this conference at Harvard um, and talked about some of her uh, pet ideas about, about cities. And they were completely different from what anybody else was saying. And she was the head of this conference. This is a 10-minute talk. Uh, and she talked about uh, some of the shame of what was happening in the projects in, in New York City, um, that, um, that they were sort of a mess. And this couldn't go on. And the housing projects that were supposed to be so great, that were supposed to be replacing slums, that were... Uh, replacing old things with new things were making as many problems as they corrected. And this this had a, a big effect on her audiences. And then later people started going to her and say, one thing led to another after that. Um, and she wrote an article for Fortune magazine, and that in turn led to death and life. What a, what a break. So just that... Uh, yeah. Wow. It's that- a reminder. You know, we, we think when we're young that everything is sort of all planned out and, you know, you figure things out and you get on an arc or a plan and you need to leave room for accidents and be open to them. And that is often the case, I think. Uh, it's so true. So, so then how did she, how did the idea in, in, you know, your research come to her for, for, for the book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities? Originally, it was going to be a smaller scale operation, a series of articles. She had, in fact, uh, suggested something like it to her editor at Architectural Forum. But pretty soon it expanded. She was talking with a um, um, uh, an official for the Rockefeller Foundation, and she got to talking with him. And pretty soon she was talking about and thinking about a book about cities that would incorporate some of her new ideas. Uh, part of what happened is that early on, she went on a walking tour of East Harlem, uh, led by a, uh, a local community activist uh, named Bill Kirk, and she just hung out with him whenever he took a walk through East Harlem. And he would talk about what he saw, and he would talk about the, the social connections that were going on in this, what seemed on the surface to be a hopeless slum of a neighborhood, and he showed her that it really wasn't, that there was much more going on, that people were often poor and living in poor quarters, but that there was a richness to the community as well, and that uh, had a, uh, took a firm hold of Jane. It was one of the formative influences that led to death and life. So um, she published this in 1961 and kind of sparked this uh, this revolution in the way people were thinking about urban spaces. Uh, and her famous antithesis was Robert Moses, who saw these slums only as places to be knocked down and destroyed to make way for his great projects. So it was they're they're sort of like superhero and supervillain. Uh, yeah, in they're, they're often uh, pictured that way. And in fact, uh, there is going to be, there's an opera in the works. Uh, hmm. It's called A Marvelous Order. That's it. A Marvelous Order. That's, uh, I saw a preview of it in uh, Williamsburg maybe a year ago. 
Um, and it's about uh, Jane versus uh, Robert Moses and their antithetical notions of how cities should be organized and bigness versus littleness. And even though Jane only met Robert Moses once or twice, so far as I can see, um, he was kind of a presence in the activist circles that she was inhabiting in, in the West Village as the big bullying enemy that, in many ways, he really was. Mm-hmm. And uh, there have been at least two stage productions that I know of also dramatizing uh, Moses's life and uh, experience. There was one a few years ago called Boozy that was that also brought in Le Corbusier yeah. Uh, after yeah. Yeah. after whom it's named, um, in which mm-hmm. Jacobs was a kind of hilarious figure. So what is it about this interaction between them that's so <laughs> dramatic that leads to these these productions? Well, I think it's um, the fact that the contrasts are so stark. And it's so easy to view Robert Moses as Goliath and Jane as um, David. And that the fact that it is so stark, little against big. I think there was a period, uh, I think about six or seven years ago, right before I started getting interested in doing the Jane book, where there was some attempts to resurrect the image of Robert Moses after Robert Caro's book, uh, The Power Broker, uh, where people were saying, look, you know, yes, it's all true. He was kind of a bully, but he did some good things in New York, and we need to, we need to recognize that. But the fact is that in, 19, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there was this sharp contrast between Jane and her friends and her family in this little uh, somewhat ramshackle neighborhood in the West Village of New York and these big, powerful forces that were set against her. And it kind of makes sense that it would stir the, uh, the operatic uh, temperament. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Robert Canigal, author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. Um, so obviously many things have been said about the, the Robert Moses, Jane Jacobs interaction. When you were putting this book together, did you dig up anything that surprised you um, that, uh, that maybe went counter to these prevailing ideas? Specifically on the on the Jane and uh, Robert Moses thing, or you know, on any topic at all. I think it was a revelation to me to when people explore the nature of genius or talent. Uh, there's a, there's a, a strong tendency to you know look at ask what in the DNA of the person is contributing to that genius or talent or whatever it is, and um, I think. One of the things I came away from my early research was the, the role of nurture uh, in her upbringing and the fact that she came out of her home in Scranton um, 
feeling, as she said, that she could do anything. Mm. She was a woman in a man's world, and yet she was coming out of that family um, feeling strengthened and um, at peace with herself and willing to take on um, uh, antagonists and enemies of every of every sort. And uh, that surprised me. It seems to be, from everything I can see, quite a wonderful uh, family life. And so she went from Scranton to New York City, and then about a decade after publishing uh, her book, uh, she moved to Toronto uh, in the 1970s, uh, early 1970s. 1968, actually. 68, okay. So, yeah, so even it was only less... seven years after the birth of Death and Life. Now, what, what kind of compelled her to move, you know, made her move out of New York City to Toronto, and why Toronto? The war. It was real simple. The Vietnam War, uh, Jane was a, a fierce opponent to the war, as were her children and her husband and most of their circle. And um, it's it's hard to remember for for some who were younger how how much the war split the country. Um, but certainly Jane was fiercely against it, and the the idea that her kids who were approaching exactly the age where they could be drafted, would either have to go to Vietnam and fight and kill, uh, or they were going to be arrested, they were going to go off to prison because they would refuse to enlist, certainly more likely the latter. And something like 50,000 Americans during that era left the United States for Canada, which held its its arms open to American um uh, draft, uh, draft evaders. Mm. And, um, Jane's family was, was one of them. And, um, uh, both Ned and Jim, um, lived out there, lived their lives and have lived their lives in Canada, are Canadian citizens, perfectly happy there. And, um, it was something of a shock to hear that Jane Jacobs, so closely associated with New York City, was leaving, or had left, I should say that she had left and that she had gone off to the uh, the igloo hmm. the, the igloo place of Toronto um, but they felt that it was essential they, Bob Mose, uh, Bob um, Jacobs at one point before they left said you know was sitting in a chair and thinking a year from now my boys are going to be in jail this can't be and they had I'm sure lots of uh, family conversations about what to do, and that's what they finally decided. So you said that um, in her later life, uh, when uh, she was in Toronto, she wrote on every conceivable topic. What were some of the things that she uh, kind of got into once she had moved away from that New York milieu? Well, the, the first book she wrote after Death and Life was uh, called The Economy of Cities, and she uh, still about cities, but also about what makes for healthy economic environments, what makes for healthy city environments. And that led to a third book, um, also about uh, economics, where she challenged a lot of received notions of, um, of economics. Um, then at another point, she wrote a book called Systems of Survival, which was a kind of a fiction. I mean, if you if you expand the idea of fiction a little bit, um, she, what she did is she created a number of rather earnest 
um, smart people talking about what was going on in society and, and how do we live and what um, what formed the moral assumptions of the way we live. And she broke that down into two categories, one that she called the commercial syndrome and one the guardian syndrome, the first being most associated with business people, the other with soldiers and police and priests, and uh, observed that the way, the, the, the basic assumptions of the way those groups think and act and live were not a little bit different, but dramatically different. Hmm. And she um, she went on from there. And then later she wrote, she did another one of these, what, what did she call them? Um, Socratic Dialogues in which the bulk of the book took the form of these dialogues among these fictional people. Really interesting, really interesting, and certainly like nothing that had been seen before, well, maybe since uh, Socrates. So you I'm say, overstating it, obviously. <laughs> so you say you were, you were drawn to, to, you started writing about Jane Jacobs about six years ago. What, what, what was it that, you, that, that drew you to her? I was looking for, um, I guess you'd say a big book. I was ready for a big biography. I had written one about Frederick Winslow Taylor. Uh, a few years before, I had written one about Srinivas Ramanujan, the Indian uh, mathematician. But the last book I had written uh, on an Irish island was about um, an Irish island off the coast of Ireland called Great Blasket. And it was sort of intimate and a friendly kind of a book about the peasants living on this island and and the literary outgrowth of the people living there. And but I was ready for a big biography and I'd long thought of Jane Jacobs as a a possibility. I'd read Jane um I guess early probably in the early to mid nineteen seventies, the death and light death and light. I'd read the economy of cities. And for anybody who's a confirmed city dweller as I was. I grew up in, in Brooklyn, went to high school in Manhattan, um, lived in Baltimore and San Francisco and for a little while Paris. And um, so many of my friends lived in the in the suburbs, actually. In the post-war years, that was the place to go. You know, if you were... It, it was only something that you didn't think of. A city was a, a crowded, dirty place and sometimes dangerous and why would you want to live in cities and what Jane Jacobs had done for me and millions of others was basically legitimize city living by saying you know it's if if you look at it by the standards of the cleanliness and the serenity and the peace and order associated with the, the suburbs, although I don't know about driving along the highway, the expressways every morning and commuting, that doesn't sound like fun, but if you view it through a different lens and if you, and if you hold up not greenery and serenity, but vitality and energy and rubbing up against other people and being stimulated by them and having ideas and contributing your own and living that kind of a life. Jane kind of legitimized it. She said, look at that kind of a life. There's merit to it. It's different from the suburbs, but it's, it's good. And I had, I had absorbed that like so many others and, um, decided that I wanted to at least look into writing a biography of Jane. 
I was living in Cambridge at the time, and it turned out the Jane Jacobs papers were at Boston College, and I went over there, spent an afternoon uh, with her correspondence, and just had the feeling that this woman was so brilliant that any time she wrote a letter, even to her mother, it was worth reading. Mm. Um, and and she wrote these really long letters to her mother about what she was doing, where she had gone, what her ideas were. And just the prospect of spending the next few years in the presence of this kind of an intellect was amazingly uh, satisfying. So that's what I did, and I'm happy I did. So how did you go about uh, uh, researching and writing this? I mean, you said you were living in Cambridge, so you had at your disposal uh, you know, a, a pretty nice-sized archive. Uh, do, you, do you research first, then write? I'd say I do most of the research maybe 90% of the research before I actually do any serious writing. But I do a lot of thinking about um, structure. From the word go, I'm thinking about the shape of the book, the, the structure of it, uh, what's going to get a lot of attention, what's going to get a little bit of attention. Uh, and that's almost from the word go. But I should stress that the research wasn't only... In archives, I talked to a lot of friends of Jane and a lot of members of the Jane ja- of the Jacobs family, um, which was an important element in putting together and depicting her life when she was growing up and uh, at home. Jane Jacobs was a, a public figure, but she was also a private figure, and she had friends and she had family, and that was that was important in her life. So um, you mentioned being born in Brooklyn, growing up in New York, as I did also. Um, can you imagine how how different the city would be if it hadn't been for her work, for her legitimizing the city and the cityness of the city yeah. and making that something that was worth preserving? Jason Epstein, who was Jane's editor at the time that um, a new edition of Death and Life came out, and Jason Epstein, her editor, who lives downtown in Soho, wrote a paragraph specifically addressing that, and where he talked about um, the building in which he was living wouldn't be here. Mm. The uh, little Italy wouldn't be here. There would be no Soho. And he talked about particular people he knew in that area that wouldn't be there because Moses would have succeeded in tearing an expressway to that whole part of part of the city. And I think it goes deeper even than that. I think uh, in places other than New York where there is revitalization, perhaps not on the scale of New York, but where people are coming back into the city and putting their energy and their intellect and their imagination into their neighborhoods, I think that influence wouldn't be as strong without without Jane Jacob, for sure. And she inspired so many other thinkers. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of William H. White, Holly White, uh, and it's you could say that without Jane Jacobs inspiring his work in part, um, Bryant Park would still be Needle Park. You know, there's just there's so much mm-hmm. of her all over the city. Well, Holly White actually had an effect on Jane's early career. I think I mentioned that after her appearance at um, Harvard, uh, Holly White, who had just written The Organization Man, was working at Fortune, and I was apparently 
called upon to, the, the idea was to um, do an ambitious series of articles on the city. And he started asking around, um, and he met Jane. And he decided, apparently on the spot, that she was a genius. And he had her write one of the key articles that took the name Downtown is for People. And that was another one of the formative steps leading to, to death and life. What a wonderful story. I hadn't heard that before. That's great. So it really just, I, I love imagining all of these people kind of circulating around one another at this very formative time for, for the city and, uh, and just doing so much to, to shape it and to preserve it. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, I was in high school then at, at uh, Stuyvesant between 1959 and 1962. And I was clueless. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> I think in retrospect that all this was going on and um, I was just busy going to school and hanging out with my friends and doing my homework and missing all this. It's it's sort of a shame. But you get to relive it through your research. That's, in a, in a that's right. That's right. We've been talking with Robert Canigal. You can find his book, Eyes on the Street, in stores right now. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about publishing trends in Canada. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to talk about trends in Canadian publishing. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. So this is a uh, supplement uh, in next week's uh, issue about... Well, trends in Canadian publishing. What do we have? Yeah, exactly, Mark. Well, every year we we take a look uh, at the market up there. While there's a lot of similarities, there are there are some differences between the U.S. and Canadian publishing. So we we find it helpful to to go up there, take a visit. Uh, our editor will call on most of the major houses up there. So I think we have a pretty good snapshot of what's occurring. And one of the places where you know I think there's a you know a very good example of what maybe bookstelling could be done in the United States is taking part at Indigo. Mm. Well, tell us about Indigo. Indigo is their, the dominant bookstore chain up there, and they probably have a greater market share of the physical book market up in Canada than Barnes & Noble, for instance, has down here. And what they've done, um, oh, Heather Weissman's been the owner for a number of years now, and they've been getting this steady rollout of adding more titles, but also different types of products mm -hmm. into the mix. Um, I know the Canadian publishers were a bit nervous when they first started to do this, adding like really home goods and American Girl. They have a boutique up there in some of their mm. stores now. Um, and, you know, going a little further than Barnes and Noble and some of the other stores down here and, and adding more stuff to just books. Um, but it has met with uh, a very, uh, good ends in that last year they're earning, their sales are up about 11%. Um, and I think we could all know Barnes and Noble would die <laughs> to get their their revenues up by ten percent and or ten or eleven percent in over one year. So it's it's worked well, and they've actually taken it a bit further. This summer, in one of their Toronto stores, they created this new I don't know if you want to call it a concept store, but it's taken 
the idea of mixed items in with books to a different level where they've really added whole sections that make it really easy to pair like a cookbook with some sort of maybe cookbook item or, or, or ah. cooking or something like that. Well, that's an interesting And, and, they, and they're calling it a, a cultural department store. Huh. Um, what a great idea. That's like, I would be very interested to go and shop at a place like that. Yeah. Well, well we have pictures in the issue, uh, Rose, so you can take a look. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and they also emphasize that, you know, at least 60% of the inventory is still, is still books. Mm-hmm. So that's important. And they're, they're not really de-emphasizing books so much as trying to find ways uh, to bring customers into the stores, right. which is something that Barnes & Noble has been looking to do, as we've talked about here before, right. and their new concept stores, which still are scheduled to be opened in in October. That'll include beer and wine and some food and with the objective of bringing customers into the store. Well, I, I actually, as, you know, as anthropology has, uh, for instance, uh, have you know, started shelving more books uh, along with their household you know, with the clothes and everything and jewelry, you know, it's, it may, kind of makes sense for bookstores to look at other ways people can, as you said, you know, be attracted to the store, come in and buy things. Now, I've got a question. How is, what's the health of independent bookstores in Canada? It's not quite as good as the health down here. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, you know, that really is uh, a trademark, if you will, of Canadian bookselling and publishing is the country is really big. And I think there's only about 35 million people up there. Right. So it's it's hard I, to create like clusters of stores that can be successful out on the prairie somewhere. It might be a, sure. little, a little bit tricky. So, um, you know, they had a, a down period, the same as here. But, and they've stabilized, but I can't say anybody has reported, you know, the side of the sign of growth like um, they have down here in, in in the U.S. And that's why, you know, Indigo was really important because right. it's it's such a big player up there. And you know, digital hasn't had quite the same effect on Canadian publishing as it has down in the states. Um, Amazon is not is active up there as it is here um ebook sales have never they have gone up and they're you know, they're um a, a percentage a meaningful percentage of sales but you know below what they are here right so in that sense there is still a pretty good diversity of of outlets where you can buy buy books and what's happening on the publishing side of things well the publishing side they've generally um Report, you know, again, the market <laughs> in terms of growth is about the same as here, mm-hmm. um, which means, you know, slow growth in certain areas. Um, but there generally, generally seems to be a lot of optimism. Um, you know, one thing that they um, were touting quite a bit was their, their Gilla Prize, which is the big fiction prize up there, was won by an independent press last year, Coach House Books. And they won the Geller last year for Andrea Alexis' 15 Dogs. So that that gave a, a big boost to the spirits of indie presses right. all, all throughout the country. And they really feel that there's a good reception and that they have a chance to, to make a mark up there. Well, one thing the independence stresses a real frustration, however, is that as well as a book can do up there, it may not do that well in the states, mm-hmm. um, and that is certainly another tra- trademark of most Canadian houses is that the Canadian market is is usually not really big enough to support 
too many titles succeeding too well. So the, the export market into the U.S. is is key for right. for most publishers, and they do. And and then then they have this bit of a dichotomy that you know they need to publish and they want to be Canadian for the Canadian market, but then they don't want to be so Canadian that. The new U.S. or England or other English language markets or even foreign language, you know, won't won't look at that Canadian book. So they they do walk this kind of fine line between, you know, rah rah Canadian and you know, well, you know, we're a global publisher, right? Well, and and talking about language, does the uh, does the uh, article go into uh, francophone uh, book sales as well? Is it mostly English? Not too English. much. No, it really deals with um, mostly English language. Right. We touch a little bit upon what's going on in Quebec. Um, you know, they have a vibrant publishing market, but it is pretty small. Right. And English language is really, you know, the dominant. It's, and it's where the big, the big publishers put all their energy is mostly English language. Right. And uh, what about the the types of books that are being published? I've been noticing in our reviews of Canadian books that a lot of them seem to have content relating to First Nations peoples, Indigenous Canadians. Mm. Is that a trend that you it's, notice? Um, it's a very distinct trend. I mean, they're really pushing this. Um, they think it's something that needs to be explored. Mm -hmm. And they I have, to, you have to give them full marks for that. They've moved very aggressively into this type of publishing and... Uh, no signs that it's going to stop. So, you know, full marks to them for doing that. Yeah. It's great to hear. Well, it's, uh, you know, some of the other trends are, um, you know, Justin Trudeau is the new prime minister up there and he's, Media darling. he's definitely attracted some, some books coming his way and not to be stereotypical at all, but hockey, hockey books are, you know, steady sellers up there. And I know one book that people are looking forward to, uh, for the fall is a new book by Wayne Gretzky. Yes. Um, that's coming out. Yep. So, um, yeah, coming out, uh, we should have a review of that in about two weeks. Been looking forward to yes. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a couple of other hockey books I've seen, and, and obviously, as I handle sports, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a most every other week now I, I see a book coming from Canada on hockey. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, hey. It, it works. So right. that's that's what... Uh, Write what you know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and getting back to retail for a second, uh, one other thing that, you know, if um, independents aren't really growing, one thing that's been happening is um, pop-up stores, uh, smaller ones. And the one that's got a, quite a bit of attention the last uh, month or two is in the Penguin Random House building up there, they created a Penguin's Shop. Mm. in like a 180-foot, square-foot uh, space that was a shoeshine thing at one point. And it's, it's in there. It's going to obviously just showcase uh, the publisher's titles. But, you know, they hope, you know, you know it adds a little bit of uh, some sort of little extra spark to right. to the lobby. And maybe they can learn some things about you know, what people are, are saying about the covers, what they're saying about the presentation, and that sort of thing. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. They really seems to be a sense of community up there. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a relatively small, uh, small group of people, you know, heavily based in Toronto with uh, a Western outpost over there in British right. Columbia. So, you know, they, they really, you know, they talk to each other. They try to cooperate because it, it is difficult, you know, and again, you know, distribution's not easy even in this digital age given right. the, the vast expanses of trying to move physical books uh, across, the <laughs> across, across the country. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, so it's a fun 
it's a, a fun topic to address because, like I said, they're, you know, they, they never say die. Right. <laughs> so are ebooks more popular there than they are here? Has that no, been? No, they're not. Like, like we said, um, Amazon has not had the impact up there that they have hmm. had down here. And I don't know if it's, you know, Kobo, we should have, you know, Kobo is one of the leading ebook device manufacturers and they started in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've expanded elsewhere. And they've had a lot more success outside the U.S. than um, than in other parts of the world, and they do okay in Canada, um, but it just hasn't caught on. Like, it, yeah. I don't know if there was, you know, Amazon wasn't around to give it the jump start that they gave down here. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they haven't given that jump start to any other country right. <laughs> besides the United oh, interesting. States. Yeah. And, I'm, and I yeah. suppose rights might be an issue there too. Uh, but you know, it, most books are going to have North American digital. Yeah, rights fair. Yeah, well, yeah, swoop, I think that's right? true. But yeah, and looking at the broader, um, broader impact of rights. I mean, because a lot of the conglomerates, you know, Penguin Random, Simon and Schuster, Harper Collins, they try to publish for you know probably both Canada and and the U.S. wherever right. they whenever they can. But there are some instances where you know the rights will be split. Right. So it, it's not you know a given that. Uh, you know, Random House will gobble up everything for North America from a Canadian author right, in particular. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how those uh, trends continue and change, and uh, we'll look forward to next year's summer. Yeah, we will definitely be back next year. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Rose. Thanks, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Nisi Shaw, author of Everfair. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 